Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to D&D Library Talk. I'm Sam. I'm one of the teen librarians at the Monroe County Public Library, and I help run a lot of D&D, RPG, and general nerd games. I'm Laura. I also work at the library, and I run some of those teen games. And I'm Scott. I'm a game designer and library volunteer. We're D&D players and GMs who have a lot of experience with a variety of game systems. We've all DM'd games at the library, and we're going to talk about how to make a game better. Everything from group dynamics to game design to world building. We'll talk about it. So I guess we can just start off with... um, Today's topic, essentially making RPG games family-friendly, especially making sure that it's accessible to kids and that, you know, your kids are going to have fun because you definitely don't want to turn off your kids from RPG games, especially if you're a fan. And today, we're lucky enough to have a guest star along with us for the first time. This is our first podcast guest, Kim. You're the first one. Uh, We have Kim Baker. She's one of the children's librarians here at the Monroe County Public Library, but for a little while was also a tween librarian, but is a miniature painting and D&D enthusiast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to join you guys. All right, so I think we'll just dive right in and start with how to make a game family-friendly. And I think one of the first pieces is just picking the right game and the right system. So, you know, there are a lot of systems out there that we've talked about, uh, and we typically recommend, you know, going with a less crunchy system to start, especially for tweens. But Kim, what are your thoughts about uh, starting a family-friendly kind of all-ages game or one that's more friendly for younger players? So let me ask you really quickly, Sam, do you mean like game, like what system of game or, or what are you meaning when you ask Yeah, that? more like what systems do you recommend or what types of games are good ones to play for younger kids um, or families where you're kind of introducing kids that are between, like, I'd say 7 and 12 to their first D&D or RPG experience? Well, I will tell you that for me personally, I am I'm a big D&D player, so, and that is that is my main thing. And when I've been introducing uh, younger folks to RPGs, I do jump into D&D, which is a really, it is a, it's a lot going on in that game. There's a lot of, it's a lot of, okay, there's a lot of complexity to those, those games. So when I jump into something like D&D with a younger kid, we're putting in a lot of like adaptations, like how to make that game more approachable for them, especially if they're not really into reading yet or, or going into like a lot of math skills, um, how we can kind of make that game more simplified. I also want to put out there that if, if like you're trying a game with a really young kid like D&D and they're just not getting into it, I think it's okay to put it away and just try again in a year or two because they might just not be ready for it. Um, and kind of in the meantime, I might even suggest playing some games like Dungeon Mayhem or like even like Dragon Dice, which is more of like a, d- a dice fantasy game, just to kind of get them into that fantasy world, into those kind of games, instead of just being like, this is jumping right away into an RPG. That's what I've tried it with some good kind of success with younger folks. I think that's a good idea. And it's also really easy to just uh, kind of smudge the rules in Dungeons and Dragons, yes. especially with kids. And like, at least when I play with teens, I'll usually... <laughs> leave out some rules like it's okay we don't make it need to make it as crunchy and the kids will never know i mean there's systems too like dungeon world that just like make it more sim- simple for you or like kids on bikes and everything mm-hmm. and can always just go with something pre-made and even monster of the week where it only has 2d6 well it's also nice to use systems like dungeon world or kids on bikes because in dungeon world's case all the rules are in one book for like the player, the DM, the monsters, all of it's just right there. And it's only like $30. And then Kids on Bikes is just a short module. So it's much easier to bring everybody on board and get everybody 
uh, acclimated to the game and give kids a chance to read it as opposed to those D&D books, which are very pretty, but can sometimes be very intimidating when you're seeing all the math, the pluses and minuses. And the reading level is pretty intense in those books for younger kids, especially if they want to try to go through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. And they do make some kid versions of D&D books that are not, they're not rule sets at all, but they're giving you out those, um, this kind of like the basic concepts of D&D. Um, so they've got ones on player classes. There's one specifically on like magic and arcana. And they're written for like school age kids. And there's, there's a much more approachable for kids at that age to read. They're not getting like the core rules of D&D through that. They're just getting some of those, those kind of elements and aspects of it. But kind of like what, what Laura was saying, like, you can kind of bring down the rules. I kind of, I like your word crunchy, so I'm going to borrow that. Water down the rules a bit to make it less crunchy and kind of create little sheets, kind of like bullet points. Like these are the rules we need to focus on. These are, this is where we need to be. So you're not giving them like, you know, the tome of the player's handbook and be like, read this. And you know, you're giving them like a single sheet, like here's what we need to do. And we, we do that in our, in our games too. We'll make out these sheets that are like, here's what you can do in a combat, right? And it will tell you like, just in a very bullet point list, like in your combat for, for an action, you can, I can't even think right now, but like drink a potion, or you can attack this creature, or you can, you know, it's going through all those different options of what a player can do just to simplify it. Stuff like that is would even be great for adults. Like I would love to just have, you know, those cheat sheets where you're like, these are what you can do on your actions. Because sometimes you forget that you can occasionally do this one obscure thing once per game. And you're like, oh, yeah, that'd be great to remember. I would definitely recommend, too. There's a game system called Hero Kids. Uh, it's available online. We can include a link to it in the show notes. It's really inexpensive, and it's explicitly designed for younger kids. So all the advice given so far is good. You know, there's look for simpler systems, look for systems that have more kid-centered themes, like Kids on Bikes and Tales in the Loop is another one that I think would be exciting for kids. But those games can still be complicated enough where it can be challenging to run it for, for younger players. And Hero Kids is specifically like, we have designed this for parents to run it for their younger kids. The art is really kid-friendly. The rules are really kid-friendly. It's a bit more whimsical. So that could be a great on-ramp. And I also recommend Wizards of the Coast put out a series of uh, choose-an-adventure-type books a couple years ago called Endless Quest. It's actually a reboot of an older series from the 80s. And it's basically like you pick, like, you are the fighter, you are the wizard, and you go on these little D&D-style quests. They're written for, I think, 7 to 11 or 8 to 12. And that could be another way where if they're not ready yet for the complexity of a game like D&D, they can get a taste of what the fantasy world is like and think about the kinds of choices they would make in a game. And the Endless Quest books are pretty readily available on, like, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and stuff like that. No, that's a really good point, too, to try to find those games that are specifically designed that aren't going to be necessarily in the mainstream. And you would mentioned, you know, the Hero Kids, and it, I think it'd be good to give a plug for the drive through RPG site just in general. is a great place to explore and try to find one-off modules or campaigns that are written by more independent creators that you can kind of dive in and get a really unique flavor uh, for your gameplay. Another really good one, um, just to mention, is, is Harper's Tale, which is a, it's a game specifically written for like you're saying, like this is like, I think 10 to 12 year olds about in that range. Same thing. You're talking about like very whimsical kind of storylines. The art is all very kid friendly. It is based in fifth edition D&D. So if that's something your family's into, that that would be a really good one to pick up. Um, and it is a whole uh, campaign that you can get. I know it's available as an ebook and also you could purchase it as a hard copy. Well, that's actually a really nice segue into like the next phase where you like, let's say you've settled on your system, but you're still looking at it and you haven't quite figured out if it is going to fit your family or the kids needs. 
And so one of the first things you kind of need to figure out is what the rating is for your game, because that's going to really vary from the player group you have, and it can really evolve as you play as well. Um, but one of the main things that we used to try to think about things is like just like movie ratings or things like that. So G, PG, or PG-13 for younger kids. And that can really help uh, guide some of the narrative choices that you make. Um, and so, Laura, I know you've done games for some younger kids. How did you kind of adapt some of that as you led the kids through their D&D adventures? I think it's really important. We kind of talked about this with Session Zero, but to make sure that you know what the kids are and are not comfortable with. So if they are not comfortable with death and blood, I will just, they passed out. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. Um, and then that's for teens. If they're younger children, I would say probably 11 or younger, then you can just say that they passed out. You don't have to explain your sword slashed into them. You can just make it very ambiguous. But I think also as a family, you probably know what rating you're comfortable with because at least family movie nights with my parents, I mean, we'd always have like a certain rating of movies too. So if you're only comfortable with your kids watching G movies or PG movies, then you can kind of use that as your your bar. And of course, like when it's like little children, like 10 and below, then usually only whimsical, like that's at least what I found has worked the best. Like I never do serious quests or anything. Like it will just be wherever they are excited to go. If that's making a cake or a magical goblin friend, then heck yeah, we'll do that. Uh, one part of D&D that's really starting to evolve and I'm hearing more and more about is families that are looking for people to DM games for these younger kids, like 7 to 12, because they don't really know the rules, but their kids are really into it. Where can they go? And if you're someone who's like, hey, I'd like to try leading a game for that, make sure that you build in some time to talk to the families and caregivers about what different rules the families want to have for the games, what type of comfort level people want, and maybe even have a little form that everybody has to fill out and drop off about that, just so that way you, even if you're not familiar with these kids or these families, have a good sense of what everybody's comfort levels are. Which also, that can be an evolving thing. Sometimes you uh, try something, you're like, oh, that was a whoops, I will pivot next time. Yeah, spiders yeah. are very uncomfy. Let's not do spiders again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I often, uh, when I've done games for younger kids, I use blunt weapons only, like hammers and mallets. So it's really easy to be like, they got knocked unconscious. Thumbs up. Everybody's going to be fine tomorrow. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. I'll also add, um, there are a couple systems that don't center like violence as much as like D&D is essentially a war game. And if you really want to shy away from emphasizing violent conflict, I know there's one system, I, it might be a little complicated for younger kids, I haven't looked at it in a while. It's called Fellowship. And it's basically a game that's more about simulating uh, like a Fellowship of the Ring style journey and the interpersonal interactions between the different parts of the Fellowship. And there's like a big villain and playing up kind of their villainous nature. But it doesn't emphasize as much like the nitty gritty blow by blow, like I stab it with my sword, I block with my shield. Um, there's a couple others as well that are fortunately escaping at the moment. Maybe I'll put together a list for the show notes. But an increasing number of, of, of systems being published that are fantasy in nature, but aren't really about fighting and hurting things. I will say with some um, <laughs> D&D groups, I've uh, DM'd some uh, fifth edition D&D games that just have no combat because the players are just so focused on persuading the enemies to be friends. And so I'll just allow it of like, 
yeah, there's no combat. You just need to persuade them, like, why they want to be friends with you, <laughs> why they are joining your guild, basically. So, like, there there is still a way to do it, so I guess it also depends on what you feel comfy with as a DM of, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, moving away from maybe what D&D is kind of about, but... I, I at least don't do a lot of combat. <laughs> well, I think that's a good segue into the next part. There are a lot of differences between kids slash all ages games and more like games for adults or teens because you just kind of do have to be willing to pivot a lot more and do those types of adventures where you're not focused so much on that. Kim, do you want to talk a little bit about how that might work or some of the things you need to be a little more focused on when you're working with these younger groups? Yeah, I feel like when I'm thinking about running games with kids, the biggest kind of thing I like to keep in mind is like like our goal with the game, whatever we're playing, right, is just to have fun. So when kids are mentioning things that they want to do, like like Laura was mentioning, like, like baking this cake or making friends with the goblins or whatever, it's important to let them try to do that thing, like not to tell them like, no, that's not realistic or baking a cake, what, that doesn't help us with our goal. Like just let them do what they want to do and give them that freedom. And I think it's important to just try not to say no to them, even if they're recommending something something really that might just sound totally out there or, you know, outlandish, um, let them try, like, you know, let them have that chance to try. And I think too, with little kids, one of the things they want to do when they play these games really is roll the dice. So it's like, yes, you want to bake that cake? Cool. Give me a roll. Tell me, you know, a cooking check or whatever Mm -hmm. um, to show me how you can do that. And then I think it's important to do, even if, even if their idea is very bizarre, keep encouraging them and, and, you know, encourage their creativity. And then, so they keep suggesting things. Kids have the most, they have really awesome imaginations and they'll let, they'll go with it if you keep letting them, you know, and, and that's, I think, what we really want to encourage. Yeah. And it's also fun to remember too, that, you know, you can let them be very descriptive in what they want to do as well. So even if you do have a group that wants to be into combat, kind of don't uh, take those narrative reins from them, kind of say like you do this thing and let them talk because so often kids don't have that chance to just kind of like explain what they want to do and kind of take up a lot of that narrative space. So I think it'd be really, really fun to just like let them say how they attack the goblins. Sometimes I've heard kids do things. I'm like, I'm going to take a note and do that for later. That's awesome. Yeah, some of the things they do. I know, Scott, you had a session once where you were having some kids describe the type of D&D bosses they wanted to fight. And one was a dragon and one was describing these like amazing bone dragons that could like shoot off bits of themselves. It would like become other little miniature beasts and continue to grow. It was just this wild thing that was so crazy to hear about. And the teen had just sat down and came up with that in 10 minutes because we gave him the space to let that happen. So it's really exciting. In Dungeon World, which is a and d like system, uh, one, of the, one of the principles that it lays out for you as a game master is ask questions and use the answers. And I think that's something that's really useful in any kind of tabletop role-playing game where you want to give people, uh, give your players more agency over the story, give them more ownership over it. And so what that principle means, ask questions, use the answers, is say, okay, uh, a goblin runs into the room and then there's the goblin chief behind him. And you point to one of your players and say, what is the goblin chief wearing around his belt, right? And then that gives the other person an opportunity to fill in the color and the contours of the world a little bit. Um, but it also gives you as the GM something to riff off of. So they might describe a cool weapon. And if so, awesome. Now the you know goblin chief has this cool weapon it can use. And maybe the players can, can get it if they defeat the goblin chief or negotiate or trade for it. Maybe it has an interesting item or, or a, you know, a pet. I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities for you to leave sort of blanks in your description and ask you know the players what they think is happening there. And that tends to make them more excited about engaging in the world because they feel like like they've helped create it and it also gives you as a GM 
it's fun to not know everything up front. And when you let the player surprise you, that can lead to some really interesting rifts and some really cool scenarios that you didn't think, uh, you know, would happen. Like you didn't know that the player was going to say that the chief had a had a magic wand. And then you think to yourself, well, why does the chief have a magic wand? Goblins don't use magic or do they? Do these goblins use magic? Ask somebody else, right? So you get a whole snowball going of really, and a really fun conversation. It's like Kim mentioned too, those younger kids just, they're such engines of creativity and have such wild, zany ideas. You might ask that and you'll be like, I'm going to have to take a second and let the players talk while I figure out how to adjust the game based on this information I've gotten. I was going to say, sometimes you can get a whole game just out of world building, letting the kids have free reign of like, okay, give me some characters. What are some buildings here? And it's just amazing, like the collaboration that they'll have with each other and again just the creativity and it's it can be a whole game in itself which is pretty fun well it's also a fun way to make the kids just feel like they're empowered in the game as well and so that they can have a lot more fun just again because they then are you know we've talked about how storytelling is such like a natural part of like human behavior and so giving them that chance to be part of that like communal storytelling group really helps form those positive pro-social bonds and works through a lot of those social interactions as they have to like share ideas or learn to edit their ideas if someone else says like well hey what if we twist it this way so it really creates those positive interactions but then the other piece that can happen though too especially if you're working with younger kids is you have to help them uh work through some of the reading or math challenges that can come along with playing these types of games. And that can be really fun, but it's also really good to get those rules and baselines established. And I wondered if anybody had any thoughts about how to help overcome maybe some of those reading or math barriers, especially if you're using dice and have to, you know, do a bunch of those like additions based on skill checks and things like that. Yeah. Earlier we talked about the, the kind of cheat sheets where you can kind of boil down some rules and stuff. That's really what I've relied on for that, the reading element of this. I feel like the math element kind of bog people down a little bit. And I hear a lot from parents who are like, yeah, we could do this game because it's going to help them practice their math or it's going to help them practice that reading. And I always want to be really cautious about that because there's a fine line between like, let's use this game to practice math skills and this game has just become how we can do math. And and that's not the focus of the game, right? The focus of the game is to have fun. When you're thinking about math specifically with this game, I always feel like it's good to kind of observe. And if the kid is, you know, if you're watching a kid struggling with their, you know, adding up their dice or whatever, I think it's okay to help them out, especially if you're starting to notice they're getting really frustrated with this and maybe they're adding them slower than their, you know, peers or whatever. I think it's okay to help them out. I think it's also okay to give them, you can give them kind of cheat sheets on that same idea, the different configurations a six-sided dice could make if you put two of them together, right? What that total would come out to, if that makes sense, like a whole line of those. But yeah, my, my biggest kind of thing with that is just to kind of keep observing, help them out if they're getting too frustrated and kind of pivot away. They don't have to do it all on their own. That doesn't, you know, it shouldn't be the focus of the game. The other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit for this, I think, is the character sheets, which could be, they're really great because you have all the information there on the character sheet. But even for adults, right, it takes a while to figure out like exactly where everything is on that sheet and how to kind of find that information quickly. So anything you can do to kind of streamline those character sheets, I think it's really helpful. And I wanted to mention there are these really great character sheets you can get from on Geek Native that they're a dyslexia-friendly character sheet. And they're really great, I think, for all people, not just people with dyslexia. What's really great about them is that the information on the page is like spaced out in this really good way, so you have a lot more white space on the page. And also they're using a lot of um, pictographs, so you can like easily think, like, okay, where's my... AC, I'm looking for that shield, or where's my uh, health, I'm looking for that big heart, or whatever. So yeah, those kind of different elements you can kind of bring in to help help support that, the reading and math pieces. 
One, then how do you feel about pre-generated character sheets and like helping kids kind of navigate that process? Because, you know, we've talked about this before. Character creation can be one of the more like long, thrilling, but uh, more frustrating processes, especially for younger kids that are trying to figure out all those rules. Yeah, I feel like, so I think it's really, I think it is important to some, some extent for a kid to be able to create their own character, but that doesn't mean they have to create the entire character, right? So I've had kids before who are like, you know, I want to play um, a human who's a rogue, and they'll, they'll kind of describe that character, and I'll bring in a pre-made character sheet and be like, okay, here's a human rogue. And they're, they're naming it, and they're thinking of what that person looks like, but the other information's kind of already there for them. I've done that same kind of thing, but also made them roll for their score, their, their stats, because that's a really fun part of character creation <laughs> is rolling for your stats. Um, and I, I, I just can't, I don't think I can emphasize enough how much kids sometimes just like rolling dice. So it's just getting them to roll the dice out for that. So I've, so I've, I've done it before where it's been like, here's your, here's your character and giving them that pre-made character piece. And I've done it before where I'm kind of mashing those two pieces together, like kind of what they bring plus the pre-made character sheet, um, which has worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I do the same thing of just having the basic of the pre-gen and then they create the name the whole look and yeah. the whole backstory and usually at least with the groups that I've played they really just want to create the idea of the character like one kid made a rogue a pie man who has to eat other food and becomes that food and I would never have expected it but he did it with his rogue pregen and I was like great we're gonna add that in we're gonna have some food mechanics now and yeah they can go with a lot with the pregen and it takes away some of the I don't know, the the fear of, like, all of those numbers and everything. But if you have a kid who's really interested in, like, I want to learn everything about this game and the rules and everything, then it is definitely okay to, like, sit with them and then help them make out their sheet. It's just probably more time-consuming. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think that goes back to the fundamental premise that we talked about for a lot of this, of just making sure that the kids are having fun and engaging in the story. And remember, it is a game, so, like, they need to feel like they're playing that game. And also make them feel powerful, like they're having a good time because they're embodying these really cool avatars that have these awesome skills. So, like, let them be a wizard and, you know, use all their magic. Let them be a sneaky pie mage or rogue and, like, eat pies to become different things. Um, But that balance can be a little tricky just because, you know, we talked about the great benefit of working with kids is they have this creativity. But one of the downsides is sometimes they have their own vision that they really want to push on everyone else. And it can be really tough to ratchet those things around. And so I didn't know if you wanted to talk any about that as well. I feel like that kind of, it is, that is really, it can get really tricky because kids are, uh, kind of get into a lot of different things. And I would feel like with a, like early on in the game, like the session zero or something, you might want to kind of start establishing this kind of, kind of house rule, right? Like we're, we're playing this game together as a team and we really are a team right now. And we want to do things, um, like, you know, if most of us want to go explore the forest, like that's what we're going to do. We can't break off and do these other things because then we're taking away from the, the team aspect of that game, like we're all going to work together, and I would really, I would, I think that I would, I would emphasize that piece from the beginning, and like, and try to kind of push us toward staying together in that sense. It is some nice, or sometimes nice to just have like that railroad for kids, but sometimes just like if they are just splitting up into two groups, I'll like go back and forth and make sure they have the same amount of time, mm-hmm. and so they both feel happy. Uh, but sometimes I'll also make it kind of ominous where it's like. Ooh, if you split up, it could be really dangerous. And remember, your you know your teammates right there, then that monster's gonna be a lot harder to beat. 
and that's usually good enough to keep everybody together. But same as what Kim was saying, I always have them as a team. Like, they're a guild. I make the ground rule of, like, you can't hurt other players, you can't steal from other players. And so because there is that, like, guild camaraderie, they almost always stay together, which is really nice. So making it, like, a team thing is probably the most helpful you could do. Well, I think that, you know, just really builds up that there needs to be kind of traditional rules and consequences for everything, uh, but they need to not feel, like, punished for that lack of experience. And so it's like you said, making sure it's like, well, you can do this, but so that way they have all the information they need, but then also following through on that a little bit. So that way there's a chance for them to realize why it's important that the party works together. Sometimes even just a tiny spook of like, you see the monster's shadow as you're alone and the ground is trembling. That's usually enough to like get the kid to run back to the group. So it's, you don't have to, I don't know. Make them fight the monster alone. Just give them a little fright. <laughs> uh, sometimes you also have a monster, uh, like one of the bigger boss monsters or something, chase them where they need to go when they're clearly like, oh, yep, you don't have enough players to fight this monster, but it's coming. What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or make one big like explosion sound or like something like alerting the group that something is happening in this one specific area and then they all convene. That's a good trick, too. Well, I think then that also ties in really well with the idea of making sure that we're doing very descriptive play as the like game master, making sure that everybody's like brought into that storytelling element, but also that we're kind of creating that word picture for them. But also with younger kids, it can be really helpful to have uh, set pieces for all of this. So like doing maybe a paper map or there's those awesome dungeon tiles that you can buy that are either pre-generated or you can draw maps on those. And miniatures are also really awesome because it lets the kid kind of attach Um, to some of those things and it can also tie in then really well with like you know doing miniature painting or other hobbies like that that bring in those artistic skills but kim since you're also into miniatures i didn't know if you wanted to talk about the use of miniatures in gameplay especially for younger kids yeah um i'll I'll say a little bit about it i miniatures with little kids i think is really really helpful they they love like of course they can imagine all this kind of stuff and have it in their head but miniatures are essentially like right they're just little toys and they want to see those things really great especially if you're painting everything Right, and then they want to move them around, and it really brings them to life, especially if they're able to choose their own miniature and say like, "Okay, this is my this is my dude," right? And they'll they'll pick out that one. That's I think that's very empowering for them. I've also played I played with this one young person who didn't want to use a traditional miniature. They wanted to use their Lego minifig that they were like really connecting with it, and um, we we let that go. I mean, like if, if you're playing with a kid who has really has a strong attachment to something like that you know, why not let them use that piece in their game? So yeah, just kind of being uh, supportive of that. And I know that they love it and, and then being open to other ideas like bringing in the Lego minifigs or, or something else that they, they need to use as their piece. Well, and then I think kind of the last piece we haven't touched on yet is like the length of the campaign you want to go for for an all-ages thing or younger kids. I know that when Laura and I have done this type of work, they're typically like three or four sessions just to give everybody a chance to dive in and play and then move out. But I can also see there's a lot of benefits to letting kids have that continuity. I mean, so I didn't know kind of what advice you might have for the listeners, Kim, on how that could work. Yeah, um, it gets really tricky, especially the more families that you're bringing into your game. And especially if the kids are friend groups, right? They want to get together and do other things than play your game. I like the idea of the shorter games and they work, they do work pretty well where you're saying, okay, this is a, this is our game. It's going to have six sessions or whatever it is we're going to play them um and they're going to be these special days that that's all we're going to do i have played some long campaigns with younger kids 
that we don't play them for a while they do kind of fizzle out and it really is that getting together aspect that makes it just too challenging after a while so yeah i would i would really recommend staying with those smaller campaigns than going for something that's really lengthy not because the kids aren't interested it's just that that it's hard to get everybody together with different families and um and balance all the other aspects of their life so one i think that is we like remember that you know you know, RPGs and D&D are like games that we're all getting get together to play. There are a lot of really great um, like learning and social outcomes that come for a lot of these young kids. Like we already talked about that, like collaborative storytelling. But the benefit of that is it teaches them a lot about positive social interactions between peer groups and how they have to navigate those interactions for like collaboration and creative problem solving around things, which is one of the things that D&D like games are best at is just like Laura, you were saying the kid comes up with these wild characters or crazy way to solve these problems, which is really exciting for adults. Like all of us love walking in and finding that group of like like-minded fellow nerds who like are like, oh yeah, you're into that thing. Let me show you this other piece that I liked. So it can be a really powerful experience for these young kids to have that sense of connection. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a great way for them to make friends. And also if you are playing online or anything, that kind of lowers the anxiety of like in person, which can help too. So if you or your child is afraid of like going in person someplace Mm -hmm. um, and trying to make new friends, online games can always be fun too. So, Well, Laura, you led some really awesome online games for teens during the pandemic. And we definitely saw a lot of like friendships blossom during that process and kids get to know each other. I wondered if you wanted to touch on that just a little bit. Yeah, it was really exciting because all of the basically players made a Discord server so they could still like role play and like play as their characters outside of the game. And so they all connected and became friends, which was really (laughs) exciting to see. Um, And then they were doing their own games and kind of going off from there. So it's just really fun to see what it can like spark off in general. Well, didn't they make fan art as well of their characters that they would share with each other and other characters would draw art of someone else? Like, Yeah, I will see so much art of like their characters, NPCs, like the guild in total. And it makes me so happy because like not only are they creating something and creating this really cool art, but it means that they're like excited about this game and like engaging with it and each other because sometimes they'll share their art amongst each other or like give each other ideas and it's it's really cool to see yeah and it's just so it's so cool to see them get so excited about something especially because a lot of these kids especially that we experienced online like this was their first experience with a rpg type game so they learned these rules together they didn't know each other and then six or eight months later they're you know interacting all the time together you know having these creative storytelling moments expressing their artistic skills together and they're all very affirming of each other too which is really awesome that kind of i think brings us to the end of our formalized agenda that we had for our conversation do you have anything else that you'd like to mention for the day or final shout outs for campaigns or things that people should remember as they're leading these types of games I don't have anything like that, but I was thinking when you're talking about all the different, like, just great benefits of, of playing RPGs as kids, I kept thinking a big one that I, I like to keep in mind a lot is, is that it's, it can help build this kind of, like, self-confidence, which is really, really nice. And, and then some kids really need that, right, that that little element that helps them come out of that of their shell. And it shows us in this way to, like, not just interact with others, but feel good about themselves, right? Like, like they're powerful and they've got something really great to contribute and I really love that aspect of, of, of playing with, of role playing with kids, um, just seeing that kind of grow. 
I think my biggest kind of takeaway is just to remember to have fun with it. If they're, you know, if you play with kids, they might not be the best at paying attention all the time and they might want to go do something else or whatever. It can be a little bit challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. And I think it's really rewarding both for the kids, obviously, but then also as yourself running it because you're, you're bringing something really cool and unique to these kiddos. And I think the last thing I will mention to everybody is just a plug for libraries in general because, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of D&D programming for teens and adults in libraries, but we're definitely starting to see more and more requests um, from parents, caregivers, and tweens as well to have games for these younger kids. So if there's not a game you can find or you're not comfortable running it, go to your local librarian and say, hey, I've got an interest in this. Uh, would you want to work with me on this? And probably the librarian will be like, this is a great idea. Let me see what I can put together. Let me find someone to do that um, because they can be a really great space to foster that sense of connection. Well, unless, Laura, Scott, you have anything else you'd like to add for our final here, I think we have had another really great conversation. And I'm really grateful that, Kim, you were able to join us for this because this is just such an important topic to especially bring in these younger kids and make them feel empowered as they start to get really excited by role-playing games um, and D&D and miniatures and all things nerd-related. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Just have fun, y'all. Bye. Don't forget to check out the library to level up your game. We have InDesign to make maps, Photoshop to create memorable monsters, and Logic Pro for creating battle music. These are available on select computers on the second floor of the main library. If you want to learn how to use these resources, you can check out lynda.com, which is free with your library card. Check with staff if you have any questions. We also have a good selection of manuals and books to inspire you to build your own games. Those will be linked in the podcast description. If you have a program or service idea related to D&D, send us a comment on our website and we'll do what we can. Thanks for listening.